Good evening, everyone. Um, my name is Jeffrey Regal, and I am the director of the University of Sydney's China Studies Center. And I would like to welcome all of you to this evening's event, Understanding China Today and Tomorrow. I think we'll be accomplishing a lot if we can just talk about today. Uh, uh, none of us here on the panel possesses a crystal ball about what might, what might take place uh, tomorrow or the, uh, or the day after that. But uh, I think all of us have paid quite close attention to China today, indeed China over the last 10 years. And I think we might see in that 10-year period um, a few patterns uh, that might indicate to us where China might go tomorrow. And so it's possible that you'll hear, uh, that you will hear some, some predictions. Now, let me, let me begin by um, doing a little bit of, uh, of uh, business about the, this evening's event. First of all, the event is being recorded for, po for podcasts. This, is, this always happens, or almost always happens, with, uh, with Sydney Ideas events. And something else that almost always happens is that we do a survey uh, of the event. You will have found a survey on your seat, and we hope that you'll, you'll complete it, and then before you leave this evening, that you'll put it on the, um, uh, on the table at the, uh, at the back. Now, um, we have gathered uh, a, group of our, uh, a group of our colleagues who are in uh, one way or another doing research on China or deeply engaged with, uh, with colleagues in, um, uh, in China. And so let me, let me first introduce them as a group. And then the plan is for each of them to make a presentation uh, about a particular area of their research and what what they think has been happening in China uh, over the recent past in their uh, in their particular areas. Uh, after their presentations, uh, I'll be putting to them uh, a number of questions. These are questions that we have gathered from uh, our China Studies Center. Uh, uh, web page from our Facebook page, uh, questions that we have solicited uh, uh, via, via email, and we, we, we got quite a large response, and so I took it on myself to collate those questions where they were of a similar kind of content. I collapsed them together into what I hope doesn't come out at the other end to be too generic, uh, uh, too generic a question. But we'll, uh, I'll be putting these questions, there are roughly 20 of them, uh, to the group. But we still hope at the conclusion of all of this to have time left over to open the floor to a few uh, questions that will that will will be I think time roughly for one question per panelist, uh, and so when we come to that, and I'll say this again, I'll ask you please to be brief to make your comments really a question, uh, uh, and hopefully not something that would require the eging or some other manual of divination to uh, to to respond to. So. Uh, I'm, I'm really pleased that, um, to be able to uh, have at the table this evening uh, such a distinguished group of, of, 
of colleagues. Um, let me begin immediately on my left with Professor Vivian Bath, who is a professor of Chinese law in the Sydney Law School. To her left is Professor Hans Hendrischke, professor in the Sydney Business School. Uh, to his left is Professor Guo Jie, who is professor in the Department of Chinese Studies in the School of Languages and, uh, and Cultures. And to uh, Ying Jie's left is Professor Stephen, uh, rather Dr. Stephen Whiteman, who is lecturer in the Department of Art History within our Faculty of Arts and Social Sciences. And so without any uh, other business or further delays, I'm going to ask Professor Bath to begin with her presentation. Thank you, Jeff. Um, good evening, ladies and gentlemen. It's good to see so many of you here. Since I'm a lawyer, I'm going to spend a little bit of time talking to you about law in China. And I'll start with that perennial issue, the question of rule of law, and then address some new developments in relation to investment policy. When, Professor, when Xi Jinping came into power, he gave a number of public speeches about the importance of rule of law in China. And this was the basis, in fact, of the anti-corruption campaign which he instituted back in 2013, the impact of which is still being felt across the country. It also triggered a massive campaign of judicial reform and reforms in the courts in order to improve access to justice and stop so much interference in the court process by local officials. So in 2016, where are we? Well, I think we can say, as with all things in China, there have been steps forward and there have been steps backwards or steps which have not been taken. As we all know, there has been a massive anti-corruption campaign and a lot of people have been prosecuted and gone to jail. Along with that, unfortunately, because anti-corruption campaigns tend to be conducted at the Communist Party level, uh, we have actually had a lot of people who have been held in detention and questioned under measures which are actually not covered by the legal system at all, but pursuant to internal party regulation. Uh, what this means is that although under the rule of law, uh, someone is investigated and then they go on trial and the evidence is put before the court, the court then makes a decision. This is ne really not what happens at the end of the anti-corruption campaign because by the time you actually get, get to the court, the decision has essentially already been determined. At a positive level, the judicial reform project has actually, I think, had a good deal of success in a number of important respects. A lot of measures have been put into place in attempt to stop local officials from interfering in court processes. That is by appointing judges, interfering in cases directly, trying to tell the courts what to do. So measures to improve funding for lower level courts, to make sure that cases are not heard in the community in which the case arose, which is particularly important in relation to cases directly against government and other steps have actually been fairly effective. The institution of new intellectual property courts, cross-provincial cross courts, and measures to stop the courts from just refusing to take cases which are too sensitive for them to handle have also met with a fair bit of success. On the other hand, these measures have had a bit of a downside. 
in that, for example, procedural measures to reduce the number of judges have had the effect of driving a lot of the younger, better trained judges out of the profession because they can't see any future for themselves in the court system. As one would expect, the senior, less qualified judges are the ones who are left in place. Uh, similarly, what we've also seen is that despite the concept that the courts should be independent and should be able to actually hear a case and make their own decisions, rather than having senior judges interfere, we have also in recent years seen the roundup and prosecution and trial of a whole lot of human rights lawyers and activists, uh, thus demonstrating that although it may be possible to get a fair trial in China, there are some areas in which the courts essentially still do as they are told. So in terms of a report on the rule of law, I think the, the summary has to be some good developments, particularly in terms of court administration and some ways in which the system has very much continued to be the same. So to be a lawyer in China is still something which is distinctly a challenge. Uh, that being said, there are a lot of very well-trained and very hard-working people in the system, but certainly now is not a time when you wish to stick your head up in the judicial system as a whole. Moving to actual legal reform in relation to investment and the economy, recent years have seen the beginnings of what I think is a really very, very significant change in relation to the way in which China handles investment. Since 1979, when China first opened the doors, the procedure has been that if you wanted to invest in China, you had to go through a government approval process. Now, obviously, over the years, this has become significantly easier for a whole lot of projects, but nevertheless, the requirement has still been in place. As a result of what is called the open economy system, and a, and a document catchily entitled The Strategy for a Pre-Establishment Negative List Market Access Plan, um, the system is changing. And what the incentive is here is because there is so much outbound investment now that Chinese regulators are pushing very strongly for increased market access for Chinese investments overseas. So in the recent China-Australia free trade example, uh, agreement, for example, the Australian government agreed to lift the screening thresholds for private Chinese investment in most categories of investment, thus making it significantly easier for private Chinese companies to invest in Australia. The Chinese government is using this as a way of pushing the reform of the domestic system. So the concept behind the market access negative list is that for both foreign investment and for activities within the Chinese economy, instead of having to go through an approval or licensing program for just about everything, everything will be permitted unless it's on the negative list. So instead of making your investment and going through the approval authorities, you should be able to just register your investment unless you are on the negative list. The big catch here, of course, is what's on the negative list. The idea was that the US and China negotiations on a bilateral investment treaty would result in a slimmed down, minimalist negative list, which would then be applied domestically. Three years on, the US and China have failed to agree so far on the slimmed down negative list, but nevertheless, the NPC has decided to go ahead with the introduction of the system nationwide, which will happen on the 1st of October. At this stage, it seems likely that instead of the slimline negative list, we're going to have a rather fatter and less fit negative list, 
I think the current item has about 100, the current list has about 160 items on it or something along those lines. But nevertheless, it will be a major shift in terms of investment policy and ideally should facilitate uh, investment going into China as well as opening up opportunities for investments coming out of China. The potential downside with this is that as part of the opening up program, China will be extending its what's called the National Security Review System, pursuant to which investments can be uh, reviewed at a central level to see whether they are contrary to national security interests. Now, at the moment, that system is fairly passive because if all investments are reviewed, you don't really need to do a separate national security review. When the new system opens up, however, there will need to be potentially national security review put into place for the new investment system. And the question will be, does this mean that there will be an expansion of the national security review, or will it work as planned, whereby foreign investment and people operating within the Chinese economy itself will be able much more freely to set up their businesses and to operate them in the Chinese context. So with both of these items, rule of law and foreign investment, uh, we probably have to come back next year to see exactly how much progress has been made. Thank you, Vivian. Our next speaker is Professor Guoyingjie of our Chinese Studies Department. Thanks, Jeff. Uh, good evening, everybody. Um, I'm meant to talk about political aspects of China today and tomorrow, um, but it's a very broad topic, so I, I won't have time to talk about everything. I guess you have heard about <coughs> President Xi Jinping's anti-corruption campaign, uh, the China Dream, and other political projects like the One Road and One Belt. So I'm not going to talk about this. I thought it might be more useful to draw your attention to something that is often neglected, but probably has no less impact on, on the trajectory of political and cultural change in, in China today and tomorrow. Uh, my topic is the nationalization of the Chinese state. By that, I really mean the return to cultural roots. This cultural term began in the wake of June 4th, 1989 and has deepened quite dramatically since um, 2013. A major consequence of the process is the convergence of two uh, strands of Chinese nationalism, which used to be at loggerheads for nearly a century. Political nationalism predominated until the 1980s, thanks to the prevailing ideology of anti-traditionalism among China's political <coughs> and intellectual elites who helped uh, China's, uh, China's cultural traditions responsible for the country's backwardness and humiliation at the hands of Western powers. On the other hand, cultural nationalism sought to retain and maintain cultural autonomy, unity and identity by defending a distinctive and historically rooted way of life and by identifying the nation to itself or its creative life principle. However, in a dramatic twist, the current Chinese leadership has rejected its long tradition of anti-traditionalism 
and is promoting Chinese with uh, un quite uncharacteristic gusto. President Xi promoted excellent Confucian thoughts and values during his visit to Qifu, Confucius' hometown, in 2000 and uh, 2013, and attended the anniversary of Confucius' birthday in September 2014. Um, he deplored the decentification of, uh, during his visit to Beijing Normal University um, on Chinese Teachers' Day in the same year. The themes of the Politburo's 12th and 18th group study sessions, they have group study <coughs> sessions from time to time. The theme of the 12th and 18th group sessions were China's cultural soft power and the traditional Chinese statecraft. The list just goes on and on, so I won't, I won't uh, name more. The party's return to cultural roots has brought uh, about a new synthesis between political nationalism and cultural nationalism for the first time in the People's Republic of China, as well as a wave of <coughs> cultural nationalism that is unprecedented since the Opium Wars, if, if not earlier. So here is really a sea change. Going back to cultural rules entails a number of things. One is the fundamental transformation of the party and the state. Since the, part, the party's historical mission in the reform era is economic development, harmonious society, and the China dream, the party can no longer remain a class organization as it is officially defined, both in the party's constitution and in the constitution of the PRC. It must be a national party that upholds traditional cultures and represents the whole nation instead of industrial proletariat. Nor can the CCP simply be guided by Marxism, Leninism, Muslim thought, and the theories of recent party leaders. It must be also guided by traditional Chinese beliefs, values, and ideas. So in this, in this new milieu, the party's legitimacy can't simply rest on political ideology or economic performance as during uh, 1949 and 2013, but increasingly on its cultural policies and conformity to traditional notions of good governance. So increasingly the party state is actually promoting uh, benevolent governance and virtual rulership and so on and so forth. Consequently, China is becoming more inward looking. Uh, and many would celebrate that as, as, a, as something positive because that is a sign of Ch the Chinese nation re-identifying itself, to itself. Um, but, but what the inwardness actually, another thing that it means is actually in politically and culturally, it is less open than any other time in the reform era. This is what I think. You don't have to agree with me. The trend, I think, is likely to continue during President Xi's reign and probably beyond tomorrow. The, the impact of the cultural turn of Chinese politics on China's foreign relations, particularly Sino-US relations, is equally noteworthy. 
you would recall that the, the relations between China and the US uh, improved quite dramatically as the Chinese Communist Party upheld political nationalism when it embarked on reform and opening up in the late 1970s. You would all recall Deng Xiaoping's visit to the US. The US and the West as a whole caught the Chinese imagination then and were regarded as models for emulation. However, as the party feels compelled to differentiate China from the US and the West, especially in political and cultural terms, trade obviously will continue to, to, to go on, and promotes a cultural Chinese identity, American ideologies, American values, and American models of development have very much lost discursive legitimacy in the official discourse. Well, that is, does not mean that uh, a clash of civilization will emerge, uh, nor does it mean that the party, let alone the Chinese pop populace, does not accept any American values or ideas at all. Rather, acceptable American values must be renamed as something else or repackaged before they can be incorporated into China's core socialist value system. So what is unacceptable to the party in the final analysis is American ideas of democracy, human rights, and free market economy, which jeopardize the party's grip and power. Differences over ideas, over such ideas, together with economic, political, and military rivalry will no doubt continue to hamper Sino-US relations in the foreseeable future. Thank you, Ying Chen. Our next speaker is Professor Hendrischka of Sydney's Business School. Thank you, Richard. I will talk from an economic and business perspective. And I will start uh, by looking back at the last 10 years. I think the scene was originally 10 years back now and 10 years, 10 years hence. So I will look at uh, the past period and I will start with achievements. I have three achievements I wanted to uh, mention. Uh, the first is globalization, the second is restructuring, and the third is affluence. Globalization is something that China uh, has achieved very strongly over the last 10 years. Uh, in 2006, China had more or less come out of the WTO negotiations, was concerned about its integration into the international trade system. Ten years later, China dominates the international trade system. Ten years ago, we were talking about BRICS. Uh, if now we look at BRICS figures and trade volumes and investment volumes, uh, essentially it's China with some appendices. Uh, we call it BRICS, we call it Asian countries, we call it emerging economies, but in fact, uh, this whole complex is dominated by China and is the result of the globalization of China. Globalization means several things. China dominates international trade uh, with a whole range of uh, partner countries that, of which China is the dominant trading partner. Uh, China dominates uh, foreign outbound investment as well as inbound investment. So China is the largest 
uh, net investor globally. Uh, China has its own regional globalization. Uh, that's my take on the uh, one belt, one road uh, policies. That this is, a, this is a regional globalization that China pursues uh, with a view to gradually expanding its economic influence it's making use of its infrastructure capacities, not so much by setting multilateral institutions as Western countries, United States in particular, do, but by going in a very pragmatic way, as it's, uh, is the case in Chinese domestic reforms as well, going in a very pragmatic way into uh, economic relations and interaction with its neighbors. And rounding up the uh, globalization of China, uh, it has discovered and, and is taking note of its own impact on global economic developments, uh, the fluctuations of the Chinese share market last year. Uh, to the surprise of China, showed China that, in fact, it can't see itself isolated. If things go wrong in China, they will go wrong internationally. So uh, it has suddenly a responsibility put on its shoulder that it tried to escape for a very long time, and that is now clearly there and, and is going to stay. China has restructured itself. Uh, ten years ago, China had just about managed to privatize and thoroughly privatize its major provinces. Uh, in literature and in, in among China and analysts, we talk about the lost decade of the previous leadership. Uh, nothing is further from the truth. It was a lost decade in the sense that these people have not uh, made major propaganda, they haven't come up with major policies, they haven't developed new scenarios, but what they have done is they have allowed the privatization to occur across the whole country. Uh, so it has shaken out the whole economy. China has now a, an economy that is dominated by the private sector with a strong, clearly strong state sector, both at the central level and at the local level, but it has made this transformation from a state-run economy to a private economy. As part of that, China has moved from uh, a low labor, low cost, or sorry, low, low labor cost uh, economy to a more capital uh, intensive economy to an innovative economy. That is part of avoiding the middle income trap, but China is on the track to that. Uh, it's on the track in terms of rising uh, salaries, rising, rising wages for the workforce. It's on track to uh, shed industries, even if they are outsourced from China into low-level uh, countries in terms of salaries and labor costs, like Vietnam and other neighboring countries. On the, on the upper end, China is introducing what is called Industry 4.0 in Europe, uh, which is an integration of uh, numeric control, computer control, and production control. Uh, the Chinese term for it is China 2025, and that is part of the next five-year plan, the current and the next five-year plan. So China has gone through a restructuring that is a, has built a new economy that is not the labor-intensive economy anymore, uh, and China is not going to go back to that. And China has achieved affluence. The affluence uh, that you see in China and that you feel in China, uh, quite specifically over the last two years, uh, when people own cars and they own good cars, 
they own flats and they own good flats. Uh, it's not lousy 60 square meters, it's 120. Uh, the cars they own, you can see here at our parking space on the university, uh, but they have similar cars in uh, their uh, living areas in China. Um, they are confident as a result of this affluence to travel overseas, to study overseas. So these are, these are development you can't, developments that you can't deny and that you see very quickly, and it has changed the, the character of China. When you go there, people are different from what they were uh, even a few years ago. People complain, said, why do we have a communist party if I can't buy my third apartment? Um, that's, that's something that you wouldn't have heard a few years ago. Um, at what cost? Um, three points. Pollution, inequality, and well-being. Uh, pollution, we all know, pollution is terrible, and it has increased... Uh, over the last 10 years and has increased over the last two or three years. Uh, every time you go to Beijing, you know you have a different kind of cough slowly. So uh, it's becoming more sophisticated, takes longer to, for you to recover from. So you know there has been some progress on that side. But it's not, it's not only the air, it's the water, it's the food. Um, and what comes with it is a, is a lack of institutional trust. Um, to have to have a government that is not able to secure very basic needs uh, means that people are suffering from it, they lose trust. It reflects back on other points I'll make later. Uh, but what it also means is that the government, the, the, the task of the government is changing. We see China very much focused on uh, raising GDP and we kind of look at the, at the growth figures and say, well, 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 if it drops below six point something, then they have civil unrest. Not the point. Uh, they have much more to solve uh, and a much more diversified range of issues. Uh, growth is something, employment is something, but pollution is another thing. So the government is operating on more than one target and it's measured by more than one target. So even if growth kind of slows down, if there is improvement on pollution, for example, it will be something to balance out that. Uh, we had a delegation today here from Shandong uh, local state-owned enterprises, and one point where they were all clear is what, I asked them what has changed over the last 10 years, and said, well, what has changed is we're not running for GDP growth anymore. That's part of our assignments, but we have to do the environmental policies, we have to put that in order, uh, and that's a long-term task, but we will get there. That's, that, that's on the pollution side. Inequality is something that we can, we can measure in abstract terms. We do that, and we look at the Gini coefficient, and it has worsened, so China is uh, a more diversified and a more unequal society. Uh, beyond the, the old measures of rural, ur rural urban, uh, and beyond, beyond what you can see when you have homeless people uh, in, in Chinese cities or when you have migrant labor being pushed out. Uh, that's something that, that you could see and can see still, and that's continuing, uh, although there are improvements on that side. But you have another form of uh, inequality, and that is, the, that is, I call it, the princeling inequality, uh, which has a deep effect on the society. What people see and perceive is that they have an elite which is creating industrial or economic fortunes. 
that can be the party lead, this can be the leadership, including the top leadership, uh, who were uh, exposed in, in, uh, by New York Times and other media on having large fortunes overseas, uh, whether in the States or Australia or other countries. Uh, there's a differentiation occurring which is historical. Something that happened in Europe in the 19th century, it is happening in China now, where control moves from political, even military control, into more secular control. But that is something that, that, that lives behind the surface of, a, of the Chinese society. And it's part of moving away uh, from, the, from the political control that we are used to in China. Uh, it's, it's a secularization of control. Uh, but that's, that's a cost that society has to bear because it's a cost uh, in terms of credibility uh, of the government. And the last point to make here is, is at what cost is well-being. Uh, from what we know about or what we get in terms of statistics, China is not rating very highly on measures of well-being, work well-being. We've talked about health linked to pollution. Uh, insecurity probably linked to inequality, but that is something where, where development will have to, to solve problems slowly and step by step because it's, this is deeply ingrained. It's loss of living environment, it's loss of, of the, the aesthetics of, of cities uh, in favor of, of uh, commercialized environments. One of the points we ask our students again this morning, what do you miss? And said, the cities have disappeared. Beijing has gone. Other places have gone. They're not there anymore. We live in some anonymous environment, but we've, we've, we've lost what we had. Um, that's on the, on the economic side, but I didn't want to stop here uh, because at the moment we, have a, we are having a, a very vivid debate here in Australia on how to deal with China, and I wanted to refer to that in some way. Uh, that's part of my work on, on Australia-China business and in investment relations. Uh, what are we doing right? I think Australia is doing very well and is doing things right as a business partner. Uh, we are one of China's major trading partners. We have a huge trade surplus in our favour. Uh, we are the second largest recipient of Chinese foreign investment. Whether we agree with that or not is another matter, but uh, it, is a, it is a contribution to our economy, uh, even if we don't like some parts of it, but I think among economists there's general agreement that investment is something that Australia, foreign investment is something that Australia has relied on and, and does need to rely on. So we are doing very well in, in, in that respect. Uh, another point which we tend to overlook, and it's quite ridiculous in a way to say we overlook that, is education. We are educating a substantial part of the Chinese elite in our universities. Uh, we have thousands of Chinese students in the business school, in engineering, in the arts faculty, uh, and that's not only one university, but that's a whole range of university. Uh, we easily fall into the temptation of saying, well, that is, that is income, and the students on the other side, the other international students from China said, we are cash cows. But there's more to it. It's, it's the education of an elite that will, in the end, uh, retain those memories and will, will have a commitment to Australia. Uh, so there's a, there's a matter of trust behind that. Uh, and the third point, I think, which we are doing right is we are, we are good neighbours. 
Uh, we are good neighbours in the sense that the Chinese have trust into Australian institutions uh, in the sense that um, we are seen as a country that is a partner for larger ventures, for example, the Asian Infrastructure Investment Bank. Took us some effort to get that right, but one of the points that, that were discussed in the beginning when this was, was uh, before cabinet and, and, and some details were leaked afterwards, was that China and other regional labor said, we want Australia in there because it's a country with mature institutions. Uh, we want that. I'm coming very quickly to the end. That's what we're getting right. I just wanted to say some good things first, but I'll be very quickly with the bad things. What are we getting wrong? We don't know about China. We have a total lack of local knowledge of China. Uh, we have journalists on the ground who live the life of journalists in Beijing, but uh, they do not really get the feed in that they should get from business. We have local journalism here that measures China in terms of indicators that apply to the US, to the UK, to Australia, but if the share market uh, fluctuates a bit or if local debt goes up, it is not the end of the Chinese economy. Uh, it is not, doesn't mean collapse of the Chinese economy, uh, even if some members of, of government make, a, make that point. We do not get right the geo or the balance between geostrategic issues and business issues. Uh, we trade one for the other. We see them as, as opposites that you, you have. It's not a zero-sum game. Uh, geostrategic issues is one thing, trade is another thing. And we don't have the balance between trade and investment right. Uh, we want all the trade, but we don't want the investment. We don't see that we need more investment if we want to go to get more trade. And my last three sentences on the future in 10 years, all very clear. We will be in a very competitive environment. Chinese domestic market is going to be a formidable market of competitors. Uh, they will produce organic food as the one we have. They will produce services. They will produce health services. Uh, we will have trouble to compete against them unless we are as nimble as our prime minister tells us. Uh, we will have international competitors who we don't see. Japan, Latin America, Europe are moving into areas where we think spot, and we will be good side integrated in global value chains. And my final note, we will be active, <laughs> active members of ASEAN. Thank you. Our last presentation uh, of this series of presentations is by Dr. Stephen Whiteman of our art history department. Um, thank you. This is a very difficult trio of acts to follow. Oh, good. We do have slides. Because I'm the art historian, I brought pictures, um, <laughs> which seems important to do. Um, I was given a sort of wide open uh, brief for this evening, which is to say, speak about whatever I'd like. Um, and and happily what I chose to speak about, I think actually dovetails quite nicely with the comments of my three colleagues. Um, and so hopefully we'll sort of expand this conversation into um, cultural realms. Specifically what I wanna talk about is um, something of contemporary engagements with the past um, in the last decade or decade and a half through art and objects and through cultural memory. In 2014, Liu Yichen, uh, who you see 
obviously on the left, because he's not on the right, uh, who you see on the left, uh, a former cab driver and now real estate developer, paid 36 million US uh, at Sotheby's for a Chunghua chicken cup, a so-called Chunghua chicken cup. The small piece of porcelain uh, that you see in his hands is a wine cup dating to the Ming Chunghua era or the mid 15th century. Um, and he is drinking tea, I believe, out of um, <clears throat> his $36 million cup. Um, in that purchase, he acquired an object with a long history of esteem. Chunghua chicken cups themselves are extraordinarily rare. Something like 15 of them are extant today. Um, and they have long been prized, being collected by emperors, by collectors, etc., etc. Um, they also have a sort of uh, parallel type of esteem. Uh, in, at the University of Sydney, we have a piece of Qianlong um, court, uh, imperial porcelain in the, uh, in the collection that was um, made uh, by imperial kilns as a gift from the Qianlong emperor, and it bears what we would technically call an apocryphal Ch uh, Chenghua mark. Uh, but you might think of as a sort of aspirational Chenghua mark. Chenlong was producing something new that bore the same mark as this dish here. And so in buying this cup, Liao Yichen is engaging in what we might describe as a long-standing active cultured behavior. Um, that is to say, collecting, which has an extraordinarily long history in China, longer than it does uh, in Europe. Um, but he's not doing that as a connoisseur per se, um, which one might say about Qianlong, even if you don't like how he behaved as a connoisseur. And you see Qianlong as a very young man when he's still the Prince Hongli on the right, preparing to practice uh, his daily calligraphy on a banana leaf. Um, he, he, so he's not doing this so much as a connoisseur, and certainly not, as the popular media narrative goes, out of a sense of national pride, but really with an eye towards the demonstration of wealth and out of a sort of sheer acquisitive impulse. In that respect, uh, Liu Yichen is a bit more like He Shen, Qianlong's uh, closest and extremely corrupt advisor, whose embezzled wealth was reported to exceed that of the emperor, than he is like Qianlong himself. Liu and his wife have founded several branches of a private museum, the Long Museum in Shanghai, as a way of staving off the possibility of charges of corruption and excess from the government. These displays of extraordinary wealth serve somewhat counterintuitively as demonstrations of public dedication. Could I have the next slide, please? <clears throat> Despite the appeal of the Ming Dynasty in the case of the Chenghua Cups, it is really actually the Qing with which contemporary China has the clearest and really a much more complex relationship. Go, for instance, to Prince Gong's garden in Beijing, and you will find a calligraphic inscription by the Kangxi Emperor, covered by a piece of glass, lest hundreds of thousands of visitors momoid into invisibility. Chinese TV is filled with period dramas set in, uh, oh, excuse me, period dramas set in imperial gardens and palaces romanticizing the Qing court, among many other historical periods. But Qing imperial dramas are extraordinarily popular. Gardens and palaces are also central to the narrative of so-called national humiliation at the old New Summer Palaces, as well as at the imperial hunting resort in Chengde. Elaborate exhibitions narrate the supposed humiliation of the late Qing at the hands of European imperialists. 
since many of these sort of key historic events actually did take place in gardens, um, these gardens now are able to sort of conveniently double as tourist sites and sites of national edification. And we're looking here at a Qianlong era uh, engraving of one of the European palaces, a sort of series of follies in the northeast corner of Yunmingyuan, and then a small girl who you can't see so clearly behind Hans, um, playing on the rocks of the ruins of the remainder of that same palace. Um, this is, of course, a highly curated history, as well as a teleological one. The ruins of the European palaces at Yunmingyan were carefully numbered, the individual stones carefully numbered, removed for cleaning, and returned to a precise, more stable position so that little children could climb on them without fear that they would fall. The fall this fall from grace, or this sort of historic collapse, also requires villains. And these include not only the European imperialists, but also the mid-19th century emperors whose weakness doomed China to a century as a backwater. And if you're wondering where the break is, the answer is somewhere around Jiaqing. We can't quite decide whether Jiaqing is one of the good guys, the sort of end of Qianlong's great sort of triumph and the power of the Qing, or he's the beginning of the collapse, and that's in the early 19th century. Um, uh, my last slide, please. Before this weakness came, became strength, however, and this too is remembered in contemporary China. In the TV dramas, of course, but also in unexpected moments, such as this monumental statue of Kangxi astride his horse, set atop a, a tall plinth in the center of a traffic circle in Chengde, like George II in Trafalgar, or like every traffic circle in Washington, D.C., if you like, or wherever you go. Um, I quickly, I'm relatively new to Sydney, I quickly tried to find a general on a horse in Sydney. They must be here, but I couldn't find one. Um, there he is ostensibly remembered as the city's founder, because he founded this garden, which was really the, the hunting park in Chengde, which was really the founding of the city. But his militaristic depiction there, or here in this photo, and in other contemporary representations, reminds us that contemporary China needs the Qing. Once the source of the social and cultural corruption that the communists sought to overthrow, now the Qing Jiabadi is the justification for China's claim over its contemporary borders and its aspiration to other territories. A final dimension of this engagement with the past can be found in Ai Weiwei's enigmatic zodiac heads, life-size recreations of 12 bronze sculptures that were looted at the conclusion of the Second Opium War from their original positions around a fountain in the center of Qianlong's European palaces, the same part of Yunmingyan we saw a moment ago, but a different um, scene. Um, and here you see a photo of them uh, set up in, in front of the Plaza Hotel in New York, um, a very fine hotel uh, in New York, um, directly across from Central Park. Produced in 2010 at a time when several of the extant originals were in the news for spectacular sums paid at auction or for their gifted return from China, or to China from France, Ai Weiwei's work has generally been taken as a statement about looting and cultural re repatriation, and thus, by extension, a certain read on imperialism and nationalism. Yet, to the extent that such a reading rhymes with that of national humiliation, these seem like unlikely positions for I and for the heads, which traveled through Europe and North America stopping in every city, or many, many cities, sort of like a rock band on summer tour. The question seems to be more about what value may be placed on the past 
and how we consume that past in the present, a question that, as we've already heard tonight and we could see in many other ways, is very much alive in contemporary Chinese discourse. Thank you. Thank you, Stephen. And that was the, the last of our, uh, of our prepared presentations. And as I, as I mentioned at the, at the beginning, we've, we've collected together via the, via the internet some questions. Uh, the first question that we collected is, what has led to the end of China's one-child policy? Yingjie, would you please answer the question about what is, it that, what is it that changed China's one-child policy? Uh, I haven't done any research on China's one-child policy, but there is quite a lot of evidence to suggest that China's population natural growth is, is actually minus, certainly in big cities like Beijing and Shanghai. Um, young people are not having as many children as their parents and grandparents in the past. And the, the, the what is needed to support children, the cost has, has risen so much that uh, it's not easy for people to say, to send their children to a good school, to make sure they have good health care, uh, and make sure they, they, especially you have a son, uh, the custom in most places in China is that if you have a son, you have to, you need to, parents need to buy an apartment house because very few girls want to marry boys who don't have an apartment house. And many parents also buy a car for their sons. So, so the cost of raising children, especially boys, uh, has gone up so much, uh, whereas the natural growth of the population was going down in the big city, even in the villages. Uh, population was starting to, to, growth was starting to slow down. And that has a number of quite uh, serious consequences for the Chinese economy. There are social consequences as well. You've all heard about the imbalance, gender imbalance, right, between boys and girls. Um, I read a story about a village, um, oh, actually, I was in China not too long ago, a couple of weeks ago, I was talking to my cousins and uncles who live in the countryside in the village where they live. They said there are 20 some bachelors who can't find wives. And that is a concern for a lot of locals uh, and that's a source of potential social problems. For the economy without population growth, the growth rate cannot be maintained. So, I'm not an economist, uh, I, I don't really understand some of the uh, serious consequences. These are things I hear, I read about, uh, and there's good reason to stop the one-child policy, and the government fortunately has done that, and now is encouraging population growth in the cities, but that policy is not picking up, um, picked up by, by a lot of people, simply because it's, a, it's, a, it's costly, it's expensive to raise children. Thank you. The next question, um, is the Politburo made up only of engineers? Is there anyone on the Politburo who has any sense of human values at all? The Politburo used to have more engineers in the late 1970s and 80s. 
Now, if you look at the current standing committee of the Politburo, I can't see a single engineer. Um, Xi Jinping is not an engineer. You see? But he's got a PhD in law, so. Is that it? <laughs> um, Don't go there. <laughs> Don't go there, all right. <laughs> so uh, now there's a, I, when I talk to scholars in China, they say, okay, it makes sense for China to have a generation of engineers in government uh, at, in the early days of reform and opening. Now has come to a time when political scientists should have a bigger role to play in government. And I think it's, it's happening. Hans, you, you talked about um, investment from China into, uh, into Australia. Um, do we know where the money comes from? Thank you. Um, should Australian kids learn Chinese? Yes, uh, definitely. <laughs> <laughs> Not just Chinese, but also Japanese, Indonesian, Italian, <laughs> Spanish, French, and German. We are in the school of languages, so we promote languages. Uh, there are good things to be. <laughs> there are good things to be said about learning languages. I read a scientific paper. I didn't make this up. Uh, people who speak more than one language are truly more intelligent because speaking. <laughs> speaking too, right? <laughs> yeah, true. And more than half of the world's population speak Chinese. Why not? Again, there. I just uh, has suggested to my son that he should learn Chinese rather than Japanese. To which he said, "If I did that, Mum, I'd be like you, and I'd have to spend my life in China." Um, so I think the answer is yes, but we need we need a few more incentives, I would say, in order to in encourage the the non-Chinese population to actually dedicate their lives to Chinese. It's not easy. 
Are there senior women leaders in China, and who are they? The two most senior are Liu Yandong and Shen Yuyue. So I don't know which is more senior. In terms of age, Liu Yandong is more senior because she was born in 1945, and Shen Yuyue was born in 1957. But in terms of ranking, I think Shen Yuyue might be more senior because she is the vice chairwoman of the National People's Congress, whereas Liu Yandong is a vice premier of the state council. I think this is a great question because it does actually uh, indicate that when it comes to women holding up half of the sky, they're obviously not holding up the bit that actually holds political power in China. Uh, and I think that this is a pretty significant issue. There are a number of very well-known and I think female entrepreneurs who have done very well for themselves. But in terms of the position of women in China, I think myself that in many ways it's actually gone backwards. Um, over, the, over the last few years, and the fact that there are so few women in power, even fewer than in our own government, uh, is really, I think, a very poor reflection on how equality generally is going within the Chinese system. Mm. Yingjie, you, you talked about um, what you recognize as a turning inward, uh, and uh, perhaps the necessity in some way or another to repackage, rename, relabel ideas so that they are somehow more harmonious with that internal, internal system. Do you, do you see that turning inward um, as perhaps then uh, limiting, uh, limiting growth otherwise? Uh, do, you, do you see that as having perhaps an, uh, uh, a great economic impact or a, uh, a something that, would, that could um, drag down other areas of development within the society? Absolutely. Uh, I have very deep concerns about it, about the inward-looking sort of tendency now. Um, talking about development, well, one kind of development, as you mentioned, is economic development. Um, people need to be creative and innovative. Um, but if you restrict people's freedom of thinking, of experimenting, of trying different things in life, in, at work, then that does restrict people's development. But we are, I'm also, I also have in mind another kind of development that is intellectual. Um, a free environment, one where people can basically speak their mind and say whatever they want to say, have an open debate. Uh, I think that's the best environment uh, to, in which uh, one can develop ideas and to uh, have new inventions and uh, that sort of development will be affected more. Um, any point of view that sort of restricts people's what people can say or what people can try is not the best way to go. Good. Um, will the Chinese film industry overtake Hollywood? <laughs> I, I'm, on the, I'm technically on the wrong side of the uh, art history film aisle to answer that question. But the answer to the question, insofar as I understand, is that it already has by every reasonable measure. It makes more films, it spends more money, its domestic audience is far larger, but perhaps 
even the, uh, perhaps to me, the most telling indication is that Hollywood films are overwhelmingly made to pass Chinese censorship rules. Now, if a film won't get made in Hollywood, or at least a big budget film won't get made in Hollywood unless it's made to pass um, censorship for Chinese domestic market. Um, and so, to my mind, that means that the Chinese film industry is much, much larger in, in every real measure. Why are artists like Ai Weiwei and others uh, so successful internationally, in your view? Um, that's a, I think that's a really, uh, that's, a, <laughs> that's a complex question that I'll try to give a brief answer, to, a relatively brief answer to. Um, the first is, at least in many cases, talent. Um, I mean, there, I don't, I, I don't want to get into a conversation about my view of individual artists necessarily, but, the, um, but there's a lot of great talent in Chinese contemporary art. Um, the next is that there has been a, a certain um, internationalization or globalization of the contemporary art market that has permitted um, certain Chinese artists to circulate quite effectively, sort of in some respects in, uh, independent of their Chineseness, so to speak. Um, they're really sort of global uh, artists. Um, and Xu Bing would be, in some sense, a good example of that, in the sense that Xu Bing has been, um, has been overseas for nearly as long as he lived in China before he moved overseas. I mean, Xu Bing has been overseas for nearly half of his life. At the same time, I think that there has been a sort of, and I use this word advisedly, but a sort of fetishization of Chineseness in the art market, in the international art market, uh, particularly around the idea of, of social critique or dissent. Um, I think that's, uh, that continues now, but that was certainly very, very strong in the 90s when the international market um, blew up. Um, uh, and then the last thing I guess I would say is that um, part of that, part of what I would say in, in general that question is that we're talking about a relatively narrow part of the international art market, or excuse me, of the Chinese art market. The artists who are really, really well known internationally are, are a sort of distinct subset of Chinese artists today. And there's a huge and vibrant and very interesting domestic market that doesn't get a whole lot of international play. Um, but one of the things, for instance, um, that makes, for instance, White Rabbit a very interesting collection, just our neighbors, is that, um, is that White Rabbit has chosen to collect really this sort of domestic market, not so much the big international players. And so it's one so, sort of small view into this audience that doesn't get shown at Guangzhou or at Venice. Um, another good example is the APT, which has been the Asia Pacific Triennial in, in Brisbane at Quagoma, which has been pretty attentive to trying to identify regional artists who don't necessarily get enormous international movement. Great. Thank you, Stephen. Um, has the personality cult that's developing around Xi Jinping, well, is it comparable to Mao's? Yeah. Well, I'll have a go at that because um, when I was an exchange student in China, it was actually 1976, which was hard. the last year of uh, Chairman Mao as the chairman of China. And I think the answer is you have to have a bit more longevity than Xi Jinping to truly become a cult in the same way that Chairman Mao was a cult. He was a, work, he was a war hero. He'd been leader of China for several generations. People couldn't remember a time without him. So even if they didn't admire him, his death was a, had a tremendous and enormous impact. People wailed for days in front of the television. 
um, in order to mark his passing. I don't think that Xi Jinping has achieved that status. I think I would see him a bit more like a pop star um, rather, than, rather than a cult. But the amount of power that he has gathered into his own hands and the uh, personality cult of his picture um, appearing everywhere is perhaps a bit more Western in its origin, and that we see our leaders all over. We see our leaders all over the place. So I think that he is more of a cult, perhaps, than previous leaders were. But I don't think that he's in the same category as Chairman Mao, and I, and I don't think that he can achieve that because he's not going to be there long enough. Well, that's he manages to change the rules. I, I, I totally agree, uh, um, but that doesn't stop some from trying to create a Xi cult. I was collecting poems, well, which were published earlier this year, later last year. There were poems which were published in Xinhua and in official newspapers which compared Xi to the emperor and compared China to an empire. So using words of the past to, um, you don't really know, I certainly don't know what went on behind the scenes. Uh, that has stopped now because apparently somebody has put a wet, wet blanket on it. Are we going to see more difficulties around the South China Sea? Yes. Yes. <laughs> uh, is there going to be uh, a near-term resolution to any of those? No. No. I'll leave it at that. <laughs> um, we may already have a partial answer to this. Are ethnic tensions worse now in China than they were 10 years ago? Definitely worse than 10 years ago. I think, um, once again, I haven't done research on this. This is from my personal observation. The best time in recent memory in terms of ethnic relations was in the 1980s. Um, the party secretary, Hu Yaobang, had a set of very moderate Post policies, and things were very quiet in Xinjiang, things were very quiet in Tibet. But then the international environment has changed as well, and the, the government, central government's policy has also changed. I have debates with government officials. I think their understanding of, of, the, of the conflict, uh, of the ethnic tension, is, is not right. Um, they, Many officials tell me that uh, the problem in Tibet and Xinjiang is not a nationality problem. I, I tell them I believe it is. Uh, many of them say, don't think it is a religious issue. I think it, it is. And many of them don't think it is an identity issue. I think it, it is. Uh, from government officials, you quite often hear this point of view, which can be described as economic determinism. That is to say, oh, if people's living standards in Tibet and Xinjiang improve, things will be fine. Obviously, that's not working. So the, 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 the approach isn't quite right. Other comments? Um, what, at what, yeah, we still have a few minutes for these questions. I still have two or three left on, uh, on the list that I'd like to get to. Um, at what, how do I put this? What is, at what stage is language reform in China, if at any stage? What, and what, what do you think is the fate of, uh, you know, given the push towards Putonghua, et cetera, what, what, what do you think is the fate of 
of of dialects and of the and of uh, of the of the great rich language diversity that exists in in China. What how do you see how do you see that going forward? Well, large-scale language reform in China started in the beginning of the 20th century, and the Chinese Communist Party took it over from the Nationalist Party. Early reforms were introduced, but um, because things were really messy in China, the Nationalist Party didn't go very far with it. But after 1949, the Chinese Communist Party carried on the reform. And it was a two-pronged kind of approach. One part of that reform is to simplify Chinese characters, to reform the script. The other is to, to introduce Latin alphabets. One of the first uh, initial questions was to say, to ask whether the Chinese government has any plans of introducing more uh, Latin alphabets for foreigners. Uh, yes, in the, in the 1940s and 50s, even before that, there were some attempts to Latinize Chinese which was a total disaster and failure. I don't see how it's going to work. Uh, just to give you an example, at the Beijing Olympics, the Beijing police, instead of using Chinese characters to indicate police, Jing Cha, they used the pinyin uh, as if foreigners would be able to read the pinyin. <laughs> Thank you. Um, Maybe for, maybe for Hans, since you, you talked a bit about um, China and Australia relations or China, Chinese relations with, with, uh, with other countries. What do you, in, in terms of say, the, the psychology or attitude or perspectives of ordinary Chinese towards, um, people of Chinese ethnicity who are foreign born and vice versa? Do you see, um, uh, are, there, are there narrowing opportunities for communication, greater opportunities for, for communication between uh, people of Chinese ethnicity born in China as against, uh, as against other places? But uh, from what, what we see in, in terms of our students here, uh, this is an issue because we have a, we have a growing <coughs> population of people who are uh, Australian-born Chinese. Uh, the number is growing. They, they, they are moving into, into further stages of the education. Uh, and, and, and depending on, on where they sit, they might be competing with Chinese uh, once they start looking at the job market. Uh, they, they probably do. Uh, on the other side, uh, the, the, from Chinese companies, we know that they regard the Australian job market as something that is right to their liking because they can, they can essentially pick with pe between people with Australian background who speak Chinese, they can pick people who have Chinese background, also speak Chinese, possibly both bilingual. Uh, so uh, there's, a, there's a diversification happening. Uh, but I would uh, does life become easier for Australian-born Chinese uh, with Chinese students coming here? I wouldn't, I would honestly not have an answer. Uh, it's, a, it's a diversifying job market and, and there's, China is becoming a, a more important job market for people from here. Uh, so 
I saw a bit of that myself. I was, um, two weeks ago, I had a chance to visit the big uh, Huawei campus in, uh, in Shenzhen, which I think is, is an example of the kind of globalization that's happened within, uh, within the Chinese economy. And I, was, um, I toured the company, and I was, I was struck by the diversity of the workforce there. I mean, they were, they were hiring, uh, they were hiring, of course, very bright local Chinese, but as well, they were, they were, they were hiring people of Chinese background from elsewhere, but they were also, uh, my tour guide was uh, Italian who, who had, you know, had, knew no, knew no Chinese, uh, knew no Chinese at all. Uh, his English was good, um, uh, but uh, it was it was an example of how in companies that I think of as really uh, China's future, there's a, there's a there's a kind of internationalized uh, uh, global workforce that that they are uh, that they are uh, having access to. Well, that's the end of um, the, the, the list of questions that, that we compiled. And as I said at the beginning, we, we do want to then uh, open the floor for, for your questions. I, I would very much appreciate it if, if your questions are questions and that, if possible, um, uh, have them be aimed at, uh, at, at the topics that our, uh, our speakers have raised, giving you an opportunity, I think, for some dialogue with, with them and giving them perhaps an opportunity to elaborate more, uh, more fully on their points. So we have, uh, we have microphones. Um, and so uh, what, I think, what I think I'd like to do, uh, just as a way of organizing this a bit, is to go right across the panel and so ask if anyone, first of all, has a... Uh, a, a question for Professor Bath about law, rule of law. Uh, yes, in the in the front. Wait, please for the wait, please for the microphone, and then we'll we'll do it that way. You added rule of law. Um, I, I, the question is about uh, Xi Jinping and Barack Obama affirming the uh, Paris Conference of Parties, and and my question is perhaps uh, for for Professor Bath and Professor Handrich. Uh, what are China's aspirations besides cleaning up domestic air quality and air pollution? What are the are there uh, bigger aspirations behind uh, leadership hand in hand with the United States for uh, decarbonization of the environment? Now that, that's a very sweeping question. Actually, I'm not sure that I can answer exactly uh, what you're asking. I think certainly in terms of cleaning up the environment, anyone who's been to China would agree that's extremely important. As Hans commented, it's also a question of popular trust, not to, not to <coughs> mention popular health. But China has also made enormous investments in terms of actually producing um, stuff for renewable energy in particular. It's taken over the world market for solar cells, wind turbines, and so on. Um, and in the 12th and 13th five-year plan, there's a big, big emphasis on a green China and renewable energy. So in addition to cleaning up China, there's a very strong economic interest, I think, in exporting um, all of that equipment and those skills and the technology that's being built up. 
which again is something which raises, I think, China's reputation if China is really the go-to place for that sort of technology. It's not so long ago that we were actually trying to sell it to China, and we still do. As for what China wants to do hand-in-hand -hand with the US, um, I really couldn't answer that. I'm not sure how much Xi Jinping wants to be working hand-in-hand -hand with the US. Frankly, the dialogue doesn't really seem to be coming across that way. Thank you. On, brief, brief, just very briefly on that point, because it's, it's, it is quite striking. If you, if you look at the, the political propaganda that we see on, on all the differences they have, and you contrast that to documents that come out of the joint economic dialogue, uh, it is utterly surprising to what degree the US and China cooperate on very detailed matters. And I think uh, what China is doing, apart from the pragmatic side that, that uh, Vivian mentioned, uh, there's a leadership side in, in environmental protection and in green development, uh, where China knows that they can't do that without the United States, and the United States obviously is keen to involve China in that. So, um, and I think environment is one of the very big issues where, where it's quite, literally it's quite striking to read the depth of interaction that exists between the two. Good. Um, uh, a question... Uh, more focus perhaps on Professor Hendrischka, whom you'll recall spoke about uh, China's globalization, the way in which China is restructuring its economy and the emerging affluence. Any, any questions in the back? Um, hi, my name's Aaron. Uh, I just have a question more um, for the panel in general as well and in the theme of globalization. So obviously we're starting to see China sort of move inward on itself and it's part of a global trend where you've seen the rise of populist candidates in the US like Donald Trump and uh, Bernie Sanders and then the Brexit vote and the far right winning in France and, the, and Germany and also Australia blocking say the sale of Transgrid to Chinese investors. But just more um, in a world that obviously there is more fractures in the global framework, how does um, China sort of, what role will China play in the, the current institutions that we have and whether um, perhaps they might want to go their own way and start um, another AIB or a new development bank or a BRICS bank, if you will, and whether those institutions that we currently have to deal with global frameworks are actually adequate to um, service a global, uh, glo a less globalized world, if you will. I, I, I can only give, give part of the answer to that. Uh, and I think that China is, is doing that already in, in setting up the uh, Asian Infrastructure Investment Bank. Uh, and the background to that is that China actually is, is, as a matter of policy, a deep believer in institutions. So uh, China is probably one of the countries that believe much more in institutions and long-term planning and building of institutions uh, for many economic purposes, uh, more than what we would have in, in Western countries. Uh, so the, the, the argument of populism is, I think, not allowed really to interfere with, with, with institution building and, and, and planning processes. Uh, you might have populist element in political rhetorics and propaganda, uh, but I think that's, that's, that's two separate areas. That's as far as my understanding goes. Any other responses to that? Well, then we'll move on to uh, a question or for Professor Guo, whom, you, whom you'll recall uh, spoke with us about the political and cultural change that he's seen in the, in the last 10 years, especially 
this very marked return to cultural roots. Questions there? Ah, there's several, but I recognize that one first. <laughs> thank you, thank you. Thank you, this is uh, your question for, for Professor Kuo. Um, you have been uh, talking about uh, national identity and cult uh, cultural nationalism. And uh, recently, the, uh, in the uh, Chinese community, there is uh, an issue has been hot debate uh, about uh, the uh, ethnic groups uh, here in Australia. Um, uh, these, uh, uh, most of them, probably are got PR of Australian and uh, maybe uh, Australian citizen. And uh, uh, so now the the question is that. Uh, uh, should they uh, hold the, the uh, China's value, what, what, what I think understand the national identity, uh, and or should they uh, embracing uh, embrace uh, Australian value, that is universal value, uh, uh, and uh, that is I think quite important for the ethnic groups of, of uh, China, and uh, it's a uh, controversial. Thank you. Thank you. I absolutely agree with you. Um, well, the question has been asked to me, well, many of me have asked the question and raised the question with me many, many times. Even last week, I was, had an interview on SBS radio, and they asked me exactly the question you asked me. Uh, it's tough, but my answer quite often is simple. That is, when in Rome, one does what the Romans do. That's simple. Um, but in more uh, complex areas, I think it is useful to draw a line between civil political matters, because we can divide national identity up into at least two planks. One is civil political, the other is ethnic cultural. Um, liberal thinkers tend to, to think it is viable to push the ethnic and cultural identity to the private sphere. That's fine. Well, in the public domain, we just need to follow the Australian law and participate and adopt political and civil values that are predominant in Australia. Uh, that's probably the only viable option. But in cultural ethnic terms, um, there are values like filial piety. There's nothing wrong with that. I don't think there's going to be a conflict most of the time. Uh, and there, uh, there is an encouragement of diligence or, or frugality, for example, among a lot of Chinese communities. There's nothing wrong with that. I don't think that's going to cause conflicts. So I tend to simplify things. Probably that's too simplistic. I divide, draw a line between civil, political, where we really should follow Australian values. In ethnic and cultural terms, there's more room for individuality and for, for people to do their own ethnic things. Um, my, that's what I do. That's what I advise my family to do. So if I can go back to the language, because I had a laugh about please and I forgot to say the rest. Uh, in the past, the reform focused on simplification of the script and Latinization by using Latin alphabets. And that reform basically stopped in the 1980s and 19, uh, 1990s. And then the focus shifted to standardization uh, in the 1990s. When I was doing research in Shanghai, there were people who I call the language police. They go and check the characters in the signs of the shops. If you use traditional characters, they will say, take that down. 
That's not up, to, that's not, you can't do that. Uh, now the government has relaxed on that and nobody's checking. Uh, there are full form traditional characters all over the place. It doesn't bother anybody. Um, now the emphasis has shifted once again to, to sort of purification, especially with the internet language. Young people use all sorts of things which uh, I don't understand a lot of that, so. <laughs> um, so Latinization has come to an end, um, but there are, there are side effects in, in promoting Pudonghua, in promoting standardization. And that's something that Jeff asked that I forgot to answer. That is to the impact on local dialects. In the past, in schools, people were, students were not allowed to speak the local dialect. You have to speak Putonghua, the standard, modern standard Chinese. Now you have a, uh, a situation where a lot of young people don't, can't speak the local dialects. So some of the local dialects are dying and people start to say, oh, we've got to rescue these local dialects before they die out. Thank you. Sorry, I, we're, 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 I'm sorry, but we're really running out of time, and I want to make sure uh, uh, that anyone who has a question for uh, Dr. Whiteman has an opportunity to ask him more about his area of research, and that is the development of art and in, uh, Chinese international artists in the last 10 years. A question around that. Yes. I just wanted to ask quickly about the need of the Chinese state to repress art and artists and, and any thought you had around that. Sorry, I missed the first word. Uh, why, why, we need to, why the Chinese state feels the need to repress both artists and forms of art? To some degree, this isn't, I'm probably not the best person to answer this question in the sense that it has more to do with censorship, contemporary censorship regimes, than it does with art per se. Um, but what I can tell you from the experience um, of going to art areas, art markets, is that, um, and my own research, particularly on sort of post-cultural revolution, 1980s art, is, and to the extent that there are parallels, is that um, I think that within a sort of very, very broad band of expression, there isn't a great deal of repression. And my colleagues may correct me on that fact, but. The, there are clearly, um, if you will, nails that have stuck up that the government has, if the, to borrow the phrase, that the government has felt a need to pound down. I would have said that Iowa made, took, went to great lengths to make a complete pain of himself, and, and the government took note of that. And I think that the agreement for Iowa, I think Iowa's presence in Germany, and ultimately his long-term presence in Germany, was likely the product of a mutually agreed upon strategy to sort of get that thorn out of everybody's saddle. Um, but when I go to Beijing or Shanghai or to other art districts, when I talk to artists, and I'm mostly a pre-modern specialist, so I don't talk a great deal to artists, but when I do, um, my sense is that on sort of broad ranges of material, no one gives them a hard time. And now maybe I'm mistaken about that. Um, would others correct me in that? No, I, I've seen um, in, uh, in Suzhou at the, at the IMP designed Suzhou, uh, uh, Suzhou Museum. I've seen extraordinary exhibits of, of painting in the, last, in the last two years that I think push almost every boundary of, of what is permissible politically, 
uh, in terms of uh, in terms of sexual expression and the uh, and the like. I mean, things that uh, things that I expect the uh, New South Wales government might try to close down if it were shown here. <laughs> Uh, that's really all the time that we have for. I want, I want to thank you all very much for uh, coming out this evening. I want to thank my staff in the China Studies Center, the staff of Sydney Ideas for helping to organize all of this, but mostly I want to thank our panelists this evening for these really stimulating presentations. Please join me in thanking them very much. <laughs>